this is Sam of Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, YouTube, Stitcher, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description. So now I'd like to give the sixth and final lecture in my series on the history of Florida, Fortresses on Sand. And it happens that I'm recording this today as Florida is beginning to survey the tremendous damage from a hurricane that hit the southwestern part of the peninsula and then moved across it from southwest to northeast. As you may know, this is one of the five most powerful hurricanes ever recorded as having hit Florida. The devastation and the casualties will probably be enormous. And as I've said before, no one who looks at the history of Florida can doubt the tremendous importance of storms in world history. These sort of unpredictable freak accidents of nature can actually change not only people's lives, but the courses of whole civilizations. And it happens that I left off my previous lecture, number five, by talking about the impact and the aftermath of another enormous hurricane almost 100 years ago, the 1928 hurricane that struck Miami. So this storm, like that one back in 1928, will certainly be a test of the ability for Florida as a distinctive region and a distinctive society to survive and to withstand these kinds of disasters. And at least hopefully it will be able to do so better than it did in the 1920s when it was really unprepared and naive. Now, if you've listened to the previous lectures, you may have some idea of where I am picking up now. But to basically recap a bit with the perspective of centuries in Florida, the peninsula has been the site of repeated cycles of boom and bust. And even from the longer term, looking at the bigger, broader picture across time, there have been various long-term influxes and booms in Florida that have waxed and waned as conditions, political conditions have changed and as the demand for what Florida can provide to people has changed. So there was an agricultural boom in Florida from about the 1780s through the 1840s with the production of sugarcane, cotton, and citrus, and that was oriented in terms of travel and communication was oriented on waterways and boats. Then there was a hotel-centered boom oriented around railroads, basically from Reconstruction in the 1870s up through the 1910s. Then there was a real estate boom based not so much on hotels, but on single family houses and mansions. And that was oriented around roads and automobiles. And then what I'm going to talk about today is the newest boom and really the biggest one thus far from about the late 30s up to the 21st century, which is based on both hotels and homes and on both car and air travel. But to go back to where we left off and understand how Florida ended up 
in a distinctive kind of depression and in a depression early. The hurricane of 1928, which was the second in just two years, the enormous powerful hurricane of that year, led to the collapse of what had been the real estate investment bubble of Florida. About three quarters of the banks based in Florida collapsed. And at this time, before the FDIC, that meant depositors lost their savings. Over 85% of the municipalities in Florida defaulted on their municipal bonds. So even what seemed to be sure investments went up in smoke. Railroads went bankrupt and were taken into state receivership. And some former boom towns, particularly Venice, Florida, on the southwest coast, were almost totally abandoned and basically became ghost towns. Many developers went entirely broke and several committed suicide, again in a sort of foreshadowing of the impact of the stock market crash that would come a year later. One particular developer, George Merrick, who I talked about before, the mastermind of the creation of Coral Gables, lost all of his money, but nonetheless was able to make a continuing income by running a fishing camp in the Florida Keys. And later in the mid-30s, he became the chair of Dade County's planning and zoning boards, the postmaster of Miami, and the president of the South Florida Historical Association. And so Merrick in this way represents some degree of survival in South Florida after the bust, and also the creation and fostering of some sense of respectability and prestige for the area. He had also taken part in creating University of Miami. And in all of these ways, he helped to keep Miami and Coral Gables afloat. So those towns were not abandoned, did not turn into ghost towns like some others did. And around that same time in the mid-30s, there was the beginning of a slow recovery. So the real estate bust of the late 20s left many large buildings, including mansions and hotels, in various states of completion, empty and unused. And this made for an abundance of very cheap property that could be bought up and put to new uses fairly easily. And some of these properties were bought up and reused for philanthropic purposes, such as one in Miami that was intended to be the Pueblo Hotel, was bought by John H. Kellogg, the cereal magnate from Michigan, who then took it over and made it into the Battle Creek Sanitarium. So again, capitalizing on this sense of Florida and its warm weather as a destination for health. Some also were bought up by new money, and even by criminals, gangsters, and bootleggers as prohibition continued into the early 30s. So certain people who might be known criminals who would not have been allowed in, wouldn't have been able to buy in these South Florida developments, then moved in in the 30s. Most prominently, a large mansion in Miami Beach was bought by Al Capone, for winter partying. He bought it in 1928, right at the start of this crash. Miami police repeatedly tried unsuccessfully to harass him out of town. He was, as many people know, imprisoned for tax evasion in from 1932 to 39. But not as many people know that in 39 he was let out because of bad health and then lived out his last years in Miami Beach until his death in 1947. 
and in a way you could see this as a sign of things to come, of Miami Beach becoming again a playground, a place for partying and revelry for the rich. And there also was some renewed growth of light industries in central and northern Florida, away from these major tourist centers. So there was something of a revival as the national economy started to pick up again in the mid-30s with the New Deal. There was a revival of the timber, paper, and turpentine industries in the pine forests in northern Florida, largely worked by African-American workers. Sponge collecting in various sites in Florida, largely undertaken by Greek immigrants. And of course, the cigar factories, which were largely owned and run by Cuban Floridians. Although now in the 30s, some of them also started to be mechanized and to be staffed by young white women, as well as skilled Cuban workers. And there was a revival in sugar and orange juice processing, which became bigger industries in South Florida. And then finally, there was some return of large-scale tourism and some reopenings of these hospitality businesses in the late 30s, as work and business picked up in the rest of the country. But this renewed growth was then very abruptly cut off with Pearl Harbor in December 1941. So after the attack on Pearl Harbor and the U.S. declaration of war on Germany, Italy, and Japan, vacationing became very difficult and socially frowned upon. A lot of rubber and metal that were needed to produce or maintain cars and trains were now used for war material. Coastal cities around Florida had to be blacked out at night to try to avoid possible raids and attacks, especially by German U-boats, and possible landing beaches were fenced off with barbed wire. During the war years from 42 through 45, German U-boats in the Atlantic sank ships near the Florida coast, causing oil and gas slicks. Some of them burned or exploded within sight of shore in Florida. The Germans successfully shot down a blimp near Miami, and at one point they even landed saboteurs on Punta Vedra Beach near Jacksonville, which were caught before they could do a lot of damage. So businesses all around the coasts closed, and many were given over then for use as military training barracks. And in particular, Florida became a major training and staging ground for air operations. Many small airports and airfields were taken over for Army use. Florida had the longest flying season of any area on the eastern part of the United States, and it has very level terrain. So if you have new pilots flying around, there's no risk of flying into a mountain. Many new airfields also were built in savannas and swamplands, and they were used to train thousands of British pilots as well. It actually served as a staging and training ground first for the RAF before the Americans also moved in. The Air Force took over the Ponce de Leon Hotel, the massive Flagler luxury hotel in St. Augustine, to use for housing and training, and also occupied about 70,000 hotel rooms in Miami Beach. So there was a massive shift, as there were shifts in other industries around the country. In Florida, the tourism industry shifted to military use. And as this was going on, naturally, huge numbers of unemployed Floridians, people who had been hit by the Depression and the end of tourism to Florida, thousands of these unemployed men enlisted. 
Famously, Clark Gable enlisted as well and enrolled at Officer Training School in Miami Beach and served as sort of a promoter and spokesperson for the armed forces. And something of the sort of freewheeling, shady world of South Florida in the 30s around Miami Beach and other rich hotspots were cracked down. So gambling and prostitution houses were shut down, which had been more or less tolerated in the 30s. And so these industries, especially prostitution, then moved into a sort of shadowy floating world of freelance hookers, small-scale drug dealers. And the housing market became hot again, as so many people went into Florida to be near enlisted men and to work in these industries serving the military. Again, housing was full, the population grew, uh, the cost of housing went way up. And perhaps most significantly for the long term, the war brought new exposure to a much wider population to Florida, especially the growing ethnic middle classes and working classes, which had been kind of clawing their way out of the depression in the North and the Midwest Thousands of these people now were brought into Florida for the first time. It was no longer a place that only the wealthy could go and vacation in. And these same ethnic middle and working classes were now newly prosperous after the end of the war. And it also gave many of these people, mostly men, but some women as well, their first experience with airplane travel. That was something also relatively rare and a luxury in the interwar period. But now, after the end of the war, many of these people had flown on airplanes, even in war zones, and so had been exposed to this mode of travel, had maybe overcome fears about it. And after the end of the war, a lot of these huge airfields around Florida were then retooled for commercial civilian air travel. So Florida was now equipped to receive and transport millions of people by air. So the end of the war in 1945 then gave way to the fourth really tremendous boom in Florida. So it ushered in a period of extreme growth. The population of Florida increased by roughly about 50% every decade from the 1940s through the 1980s. And in total, the population of the state multiplied by over a, a factor of more than six between 1930 and 1990, thus becoming very rapidly one of the five largest states in the Union. The population of Florida became majority urban by no later than 1950, and it was concentrated mainly in five large, fast-growing metropolitan areas, Miami, Jacksonville, Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Orlando. So there's been a huge shift into the cities and southward. This tremendous boom from the post-war era up to about 1990, depended on several important innovations that had to lay the groundwork to make it possible for Florida to become an urban civilization. One was mosquito control. So people had known that important deadly tropical diseases like malaria and cephalitis and especially yellow fever were spread by mosquitoes since the end of the 19th century. And the fact that yellow fever was mosquito-borne was first discovered by the Cuban doctor Carlos Finley in 1886. But American doctors generally didn't believe this uh, argument. They, they refused to believe it until the experiments by Walter Reed after 1900. 
and the urgency of controlling yellow fever was spurred on very much first by the Spanish-American War and the thousands of men lost to tropical diseases, and then by the building of the Panama Canal, where also thousands of people were lost, especially to yellow fever. So after 1900, American officials and physicians and engineers developed strategies of draining stagnant pools and ditches in order to create dry buffer zones and keep mosquitoes away from human populations. And this had an immediate dramatic effect in Florida. The last known yellow fever case in Florida was in 1918. And then in 1945, at the end of the war, right after Japanese surrender, the USDA launched a campaign of spraying wetlands and fields in Orange County, Florida with DDT, a pesticide which had been used during the war mainly in order to kill lice and in order also to kill malaria-carrying mosquitoes in various military camps all around the world, like in the Pacific. And now the government wanted to try out DDT for domestic use and killing pests that were seen as harmful to the agricultural economy. So the main goal was to kill agricultural pests feeding on citrus and on cattle in Florida. But once the effects were seen, residents in Florida actually organized and demanded more spraying to combat mosquitoes, which they considered the biggest benefit of DDT, the elimination of mosquito populations. So there was a wave of enthusiasm. DDT in the late 40s was seen as a kind of wonder solution, you know, in this sort of period of craze for new technologies that could solve age-old problems of life. And DDT was also used for sanitation, even within homes, against roaches, supposedly against the polio virus, and so on. And it was called in the local press Magic DDT or Precious DDT. And many spraying campaigns were undertaken all around the state. The mayor of Fort Lauderdale, like many you know, boosters, used this poetic language. He bragged about seeing, quote, a lovely cloud of DDT hanging over the city one morning. This great trust in DDT lasted into the 50s, but gradually a movement against it formed, as some people warned about dangers to humans or to wildlife. And this oppositional movement was spurred on, of course, by Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, in 1962. And DDT finally was banned by the federal government in 1972, mainly because it was shown that it was causing harm to eagles, the national symbol. But nonetheless, there are still reserves uh, and deposits of DDT in wetlands that sometimes kill not only insects, but birds and other animals right up to this day. Now, regardless the drastic reduction of mosquito populations near cities uh, allowed for the permanent suppression of these mosquito-borne illness outbreaks, although there are still occasional small epidemics of some of them, especially encephalitis. The second big important innovation that made this final Florida boom possible was air conditioning. So the actual first invention of air conditioning, you know, much like Carlos Finley's discovery that mosquitoes spread yellow fever, there wasn't also an earlier discovery of air conditioning, which 
had very little effect and ended up being forgotten. So it was first invented, it seems, by Dr. John Gorey, a Scottish-American physician at Apalachicola in Florida in 1844. And he created the first machine that could create ice, even in a hot environment, by funneling compressed air through coils and thus pushing thermal energy out of a cooled chamber. And Dr. Gorey was trying to treat yellow fever. So at that early time, he believed that, like many physicians, he believed yellow fever was caused by heat and swamp vapors. And so he hoped that he could create ice in order to cool rooms and cure people's cases of yellow fever. Now, of course, he also noticed that this made for a commercially viable product. People would pay money for uh, manufactured ice in a place like Florida. But unfortunately, he died not long after, and the invention was never mass-produced or capitalized on. But the basic concept of air conditioning was rediscovered decades later by Willis Carrier in the early 1900s, who originally was aiming not to cool air, but to dry air out in a printing shop so that the ink on printed materials would dry better. But people, of course, by this time knew that there was growing demand to live in hot environments with warm winters like Florida and the West Indies. And so they began to be sold commercially, and then they were mass-produced in small, easy-to-move, easy-to-install units in order to cool World War II barracks. So again, the mobilization of the war spurred on the introduction of this new technology that could then be used in the tropical environment of Florida. And air conditioning was so crucial in the 40s and 50s because it allowed for a whole reinvention of Florida and Florida real estate, and it allowed for a transition into year-round living, not just winter living. So whereas Florida had always been a tourist destination or for you know more than 100 years had been a big tourist destination, mainly for wealthy people who would retreat there for the winter, now one could market and sell all kinds of real estate in Florida as heat-proof and hence uh, a hospitable, comfortable place for the whole year. And this in turn then spurred on the enormous growth of the year-round population. The third innovation, as I've mentioned, is air travel. So air travel had always been heavily used in Florida. Florida was a proving ground of mass air travel. And in fact, the world's first ever commercial air flight was from St. Petersburg to Tampa, just across Tampa Bay in 1914. So within just 11 years after the invention of heavier-than-air flight at Kitty Hawk, there were Florida entrepreneurs setting up commercial airlines. And that particular airline only lasted for a few months, but that's because it quickly was overtaken then by big commercial airline companies that would fly longer distances to bigger airports. And Florida has always continued right from that very beginning in 1914 to today. Florida has always been a major destination and a major hub of air travel as the airline industry has grown. The fourth is highways. So as I mentioned last time, in the 1910s, under Governor Sidney Katz, the government really spurred on a transition from train travel 
to car and road travel, which was perceived by many people as more individualist, more populist. And Florida became a major site of highway building. Some highways were privately built in the 1920s, such as the Tamiami Trail, running through the whole length of South Florida and connecting Tampa to Miami. In the 30s, this, during the Depression, the state stepped in and a state highway was built along the Keys all the way to Key West, running in parallel to Flagler's Railroad. And this also, like Flagler's Railroad, was an enormous, arduous, costly project. Several hundred military veterans were actually killed when uh, they were employed on building this road as part of a veterans employment program. And then they were hit by an enormous hurricane with storm surge and several hundred tragically died. The state government in general was very permissive and encouraged a sort of open, freewheeling transition to car travel. Florida allowed higher speed limits than other states. It had very low driving license requirements. No licenses were required to drive in Florida at all until 1939, and tests for those licenses were not started until 1941, so later than most states. And, you know, Florida, again, has a lot of straight flat roads on flat terrain, which were seen as kind of a a playground for drivers. After the war in the 50s, many new highways and bridges were built, including the enormous Sunshine Skyway over Tampa Bay. And then there was further enormous expansion, of course, with the National Highways Project in the late 50s and the 60s, which culminated eventually in I-95, the main, you know, biggest north-south thoroughfare along the East Coast, running all the way down and extending to its final end at Miami. And that last exit in Miami was completed in 1976. The fifth important innovation was the growing fashion for sea bathing. So as I said last time, sea bathing was not very popular. It was not seen as safe or fun or healthy through most of the 19th century, but then it became gradually more common in the 10s, the 20s, and then especially boomed in the post-war era. And the fashion for sea bathing spurred tourism specifically for beaches, so not so much for hunting and fishing like in the Reconstruction era or boating like in the the Belle Epoque. Rather, now beaches were the main target and destination. They were a place to see and be seen, a place to show off one's body, one's fashion. And tourism, this is what finally put tourism over the top and caused tourism to overtake agriculture as the biggest industry in Florida after about 1950. And the sixth sort of groundwork and condition that paved the way for this Florida boom was the highly favorable laws. Laws very favorable to business incorporation and profit making and to wealthy migrants and retirees. So the state back in 1924 had enacted not only a law but a constitutional amendment prohibiting any state income tax. So Florida today is one of only seven states with no income tax and also prohibiting any estate or inheritance tax. 
And this really makes Florida into a highly advantageous place to expire. And this sort of favorable environment of the sort of free accumulation of wealth and the passage of wealth from generation to generation untaxed, this in, a, in combination with the climate and the warm winters draws in a massive stream of retirees into Florida, which comes to be called, quote, God's waiting room. And there are property taxes in Florida, but they are only assessed for local governments, not the state. And in many localities, they are very low. And furthermore, state laws ensure that those property taxes cannot increase faster than CPI, the Consumer Price Index. So if consumer prices in a given year only increase 4%, then localities are not allowed to increase property taxes or property tax assessments on holdings more than 4%. So this makes Florida a really excellent place for investment and speculation in property, right? If you're allowed to buy in at a certain level and then resell when the value goes up, but not have to pay increasing property taxes along the way in the interim, it makes for a sort of massive undiluted windfall gain. So one might ask, if there's no state collected property tax, no estate taxes, no state income tax, where does their revenue come from? Some you know, significant fractions of the state revenue come from corporate income taxes, which do exist in Florida, gas and fuel taxes, and some others. But the bulk of it, about 72% as of recent times, 72% comes from sales and use tax. And hence, the state's income really depends overwhelmingly on the tourism industry, right? Residents and owners within Florida are taxed very minimally, whereas it is visitors coming in and spending money from outside that provide that margin that the state budget runs on. Okay, so all of these are reasons that can account for the massive population growth in Florida, right? But not everyone in Florida is a retiree. There has to be somebody doing the work, right? And Florida is, although there is enormous wealth in Florida, it is not uh, a wealthy state on average, meaning there are many working people, middle class people, and there is poverty. And the state constantly needs to bring in and renew and grow industries in order to uh, employ this massive population. So what were the industries in Florida during these years of boom? And what are the industries that capitalized on these new favorable conditions? Well, as I mentioned, of course, beach tourism, which spurred on tremendous growth of beachfront cities. So cities that had been very small towns or outposts in the 19th century now massively exploded, such as Fort Lauderdale, Boca Raton, which is in particular a wealthy residential city, Vero Beach, Melbourne, St. Petersburg, Panama City on the upper Gulf Coast, etc., etc. And these beach tourism sites crucially serve a very wide range of markets, right? It is not all geared towards one particular demographic, like you might have seen on the steam tour boats in the 1870s or Coral Gables in the 1920s. Rather, there is a tremendous wide range of markets from high-end summer houses and resorts 
on the one hand, to very cheap motels and rentals geared towards uh, lower income tourists and especially now towards spring break students, right? The spring break migration of American students to the cheaper parts of Florida has become a kind of annual ritual. And the center of nightlife, music, high society really moved gradually into Miami Beach, right? Miami Beach built up a string of large resort hotels arranged along the beachfront and boardwalk, many of them designed in the sort of distinctive garish modernist style of the 50s, a lot of them by the same architect who went by the name Lapidus. He, he designed almost one of these resort hotels every year. And Miami Beach really early on became the sort of model or template that all the oceanfront cities, whether you're talking about Fort Lauderdale or Sarasota or St. Petersburg, all tried to mimic in their way. The next really big boom industry in post-war Florida was orange juice, right? And juice from concentrate is another legacy of the war, right? During the war, soldiers and sailors around the world had to be fed and they had to get vitamin C to prevent scurvy. But preserving and shipping orange juice all the way around the globe is extremely inefficient. And so concentrate was invented to allow for easier transport. And when this then also was introduced into domestic civilian industry, it allowed for massive production and transport on an even greater scale. And also it allowed for a new efficiency because oranges that were not so good looking, that might be blemished, that don't look so appetizing on a store shelf, could be used to make enormous amounts of orange juice anyway. And Minute Maid in particular became a massive industrial business. It bought up thousands of groves and farms all around Florida and consolidated them into enormous agribusiness enterprises. And a lot of the labor for Minute Maid was done by fairly low-paid Bahamian and other West Indian workers. And the conditions and the treatment of these workers became something of a scandal because of a documentary in the 1960s called Harvest of Shame, which sort of shone a spotlight on this very low-wage kind of shadow world of agricultural work in Florida. Another new industry that quickly moved into the state was professional sports. So whereas leisure sports like tennis, golf, boating had always been popular, now professional sports were brought in very fast to take advantage not only of the growing markets, but also of the warm winters and the milder weather. So spring training, one early example, spring training in baseball, began in Florida in the 1910s and then gradually, decade by decade, became the norm. It's now, again, a custom for Major League Baseball teams to play uh, open, you know, sell tickets to open spring training games in Februarys in Florida. And then later, of course, NFL teams moved into Miami, Tampa, and Jacksonville, Major League Baseball teams in Miami and Tampa, and NBA teams in Miami and Orlando. Another industry that sort of kept up Florida's prestige and access to some higher end, higher taste markets was cultural philanthropy. So Florida, you know, as we said, it became God's waiting room. A lot of wealth could accumulate there. And cultural philanthropy was a good way of disposing of many of these fortunes. So Florida became a place for lavish private gifts to the public, like buildings and art. 
and for often for collecting overlooked or unusual artwork that wasn't in fashion at the moment in New York or Chicago. And one pioneer of this was Charles Hosmer Morse, who was a millionaire machinery manufacturer from Chicago. In the early 1900s, he spent much of his time in Central Florida, and he gave for public works like the first town hall in the town of Winter Park. And then his granddaughter, Jeanette McKean, used this enormous inherited fortune to found the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art, also in Winter Park. And in the 1950s, this museum became the major collection of Tiffany, this sort of celebrated American house of art and craft that wasn't in fashion anymore. And the museum bought up and even salvaged unusual uh, whole structures like the abandoned chapel that Tiffany had built for the 1893 World Fair in Chicago. So this is just one example of the sort of unusual collections and destinations that formed in Florida in this retirement and real estate boom. And lastly, of course, just retirement itself, especially now in the post-war era for the middle class, right? And this was made possible for millions of middle-class people because of social security and large union pensions and old empty houses in neighborhoods that had been built in the earlier boom in the 1920s gradually filled up and were, were bought up by these middle-income pensioners in the 50s and 60s. And as that stock ran out, new ones were quickly built. And according to one builder in the 60s, quote, the ceiling on our operation is the number of retired persons in the U.S. So there was a sense of kind of unlimited, endless growth as Florida served the whole country. For the upper class, for people of greater means, there were retirement home developments with golf clubs, pools, and so on. Many homes were built by so-called finger islanding, where developers would buy up wetlands, especially along the intracoastal waterway, dredge out channels in the wetlands, and then use the spoil to pile up strips of high ground upon which to build roads and houses. And this strategy especially allowed the massive expansion of Fort Lauderdale into a large affluent residential city that had barely been on the map before. For the lower middle class, there were inland developments farther away from the coastal waterways that built small cottages and especially a lot of mobile home parks. And for the sort of affluent upper middle class, kind of in between the mansion and country club set on the one hand and the mobile home park class on the other hand, for the sort of affluent middle class that found mansions too expensive, there was a boom in condominiums. And many large seaside buildings were built very quickly between the 50s and the 80s. A lot of them were built rapidly over bulldozed dunes, over the sites of what, what had been older cottages or Moorish-style mansions and hotels. And the developers took advantage of new federal laws that had been enacted in 1961, allowing for easier co-ownership of buildings by multiple stakeholders. And these laws allowed the sellers of these condominiums to set up complicated contracts 
that on the one hand granted formal ownership of an apartment and a share in a building to a resident, but could still require continuing fees into the indefinite future to be paid in by these condominium owners. And many of these contracts turned out to be rackets. A lot of the buildings were poorly managed. The fees simply disappeared and no good maintenance work was done. And some of them, especially at moments of booming, were really poorly built. And in 1981, a building, the Harbor K condos in Cocoa Beach, collapsed, killing dozens of construction workers. And this scandal then led to reform of the industry with more guarantees of quality, safety, and some more limits on what these developers and sellers could do with these condo fees. And then, of course, as a fringe and a spillover with this enormous retirement real estate industry, there was a concurrent rise in health care and elder care, which have become also major employers in Florida. Then there also were more specific and localized boom industries that sprang up in Florida in more specific sites, usually in the central part of the state, which had a lot of the advantages of the tropical environment, but was not as completely developed and as expensive as South Florida. So the first of these was the Space Coast which, to go back all the way to the beginning, is where I started the first lecture in Titusville, near Cape Canaveral. So the space race in America took off in the early 60s, just in time, as it happens, as the big 1950s residential boom in Florida was starting to peter out because of a series of land scandals of poor quality land being uh, sold off at inflated prices, uh, misleading advertising, and so on. But the space race came in to sort of pick up the pace of growth just in time. And it centered, of course, on Cape Canaveral. And the U.S. government had been using Cape Canaveral as a site for missile and rocket tests starting back in 1949. And little by little, more and more interest and investment was put into Cape Canaveral. In 1959, the Department of Defense moved 5,000 personnel there, although they did not publicly formally announce why or what they were doing, and they were secretly intending to start people working on spacecraft. And Cape Canaveral was a natural site for this because, for one thing, because of its southerly location, which actually makes uh, objects on the surface a tiny bit lighter and makes it slightly easier for them to launch into space because they're getting more of a boost, you could say, from the rotation of the Earth down closer to the equator. Also, Cape Canaveral juts out into the ocean, and hence rockets could be fairly easily directed away from land and populated places. And the whole area Despite the continuing Florida boom, the area was comparatively thinly populated. It had been passed by by Henry Flagler's railroad, and his hotel developments had basically skipped past it right from the St. Augustine area to Palm Beach. And a lot of Cape Canaveral continued to be wild, surrounded by swamps and channels. And people who worked at the launch sites could describe alligators and rattlesnakes often coming out of the channels to sun on the open tarmacs. And a full launch base for spacecraft was built in 1962. 
And this, for the first time, brought a lot of heavy industries into Florida for the first time. The sort of pinnacle of it all was the massive vehicle assembly building on the, the launch site, which was large enough for the Statue of Liberty to walk in through the doorways and was just really the, the biggest manufacturing building in the world at that time. And then beyond that, it, that spurred on a boom of supporting industries. There was a scramble for housing, new roads, sewers, schools, and so forth all around East Central Florida, around these towns of Melbourne and Titusville. And there was an emergence of a divide and some friction between space workers and the native local people who had very different backgrounds and experiences and did not have the sort of wealth that these high-paid engineers were bringing in. But of course, there was still enormous pride with the success of the moon landing in 1969, coming off a Saturn V rocket launched from Cape Canaveral. But after the success of those series of moon landings from 69 into the early 70s, then the workforce was massively trimmed back, right? The Apollo program was downsized. About two-thirds of the workforce was laid off or moved somewhere else. Many of these highly skilled workers left, but others wanted to stay. And they remained in Florida and had to transition often to lower-paying jobs in the tourism business. With this huge loss of income, many empty homes were left abandoned or foreclosed upon by banks. But then the prosperity started to revive again somewhat in the early 80s with the creation of the space shuttle program, which also then spurred on other new businesses, especially the newest high-tech businesses in electronics, radar, aerospace, and so forth. The second big new industry that took off in a localized part of Florida, in central Florida, in this era, was, of course, Disney World. So Disneyland in California had been a pretty big success, but Walt Disney, who sort of ran the whole uh, enormous corporation like a monarch, he was frustrated by certain conditions at Disneyland in California. The site was not all that large. It was only about 230 acres, and it was hemmed in by other privately held land and by businesses. And a lot of the fringe benefits of the visitors to Disneyland, things like restaurants, hotels, actually spilled over into the surrounding area around Anaheim. And Walt Disney reportedly complained that a second-rate Las Vegas had sprung up sort of around the site of Disneyland. So partly because of this frustration and partly in order to tap into the proximity to the East Coast, in 1958, Disney decided to open another park in Florida. And his advisors advised him to, to site it on the coast in order to take maximum advantage of the tropical landscape. But Walt Disney disagreed. He decided it should be inland in order to avoid the brunt of hurricanes in order to avoid corrosion from salty sea air. And also he wanted a very wide berth. He wanted a large buffer of land that he could control and plan entirely. So rather than putting it on the ocean where there were already towns and hotels, he wanted it inland where he said he would create his own waterfront. 
And he ended up choosing basically the very center of Florida, just south of Orlando, where there was a lot of unused woodland, swampland, and savannah land. And so in the early 60s, Disney began secretly using fake names and shell companies, buying up plots of land around central Florida in order to piece them together like a jigsaw into a large site for a new park. And it was kept secret partly in order to not drive up the prices to avoid the eventuality of certain landowners holding out and demanding enormous prices. But Walt Disney visited Florida himself in 1965, supposedly in order to see the space launch base at Cape Canaveral. But nonetheless, word got out that he was looking into Florida real estate and that he was sort of secretly buying up pieces of land. And so he was forced in later that year to publicly announce the plans for a new bigger Disney park in Florida. And ultimately, Disney accumulated a tract of about 27,000 acres, or the size of two Manhattans, for an average of less than $200 an acre, so at a really great bargain price. And once he had put together this enormous tract, he did sell off some small lots for businesses that he didn't want to run himself, like gas stations, and sold those sites for over 100000 an acre. So really, Disney made a lot of money here, not just as a park designer, but as a, a, a land speculator, right, in the great Florida tradition. And over the late 60s, the park was built according to a grand plan and very expansive designs. And Disney himself actually died before it was completed, but he very much set out the vision that he wanted the park to create, as was his want. And he took advantage, the company took advantage for one thing, of a special legal status that the state legislature granted to them. So the legislature made the Disney property into the so-called Reedy Creek Improvement District that enabled the company to make planning, zoning, and infrastructure decisions on their own without state approval. And in this way to sort of set up almost a kind of government within the government. And it the, the bill stipulated that the Disney company must provide its own power, water, fire department, and maintain its own roads. But in return, it was excused from paying taxes to support the state infrastructure outside the park. And you may have heard of this because it recently came into the news that the just earlier this year, the State House passed a bill to dissolve this Reedy Creek Improvement District. But it has not yet been implemented, and nobody really knows exactly what that means, what's going to happen. Uh, if this legal entity is wiped out, will the state have to step in and provide things like fire protection, water, and so forth to Disney World where they haven't before? You know, what are the implications and how do you undo this arrangement that's been in place for 50 years? Now, regardless, using all of these advantages and spending, of course, millions of dollars, Disney was able to complete the park at basically the last minute before then holding a grand opening in 1971 with a very extravagant parade and festival. But disappointingly, only about 10,000 visitors came for this grand opening, and it seemed initially like it might be a failure until later that year in Thanksgiving, cars were seen lined up for miles 
down the interstate, trying to get in the gates of Disney World. And ultimately, through that winter, about 11 million people came to the park. And ever since then, it has been customarily ranked in the top 10 most visited attractions on the planet. When it first opened, it was basically just consisted of the Magic Kingdom, and it employed about 6,000 people, so that was a sizable employer. But it has grown over the years to 77,000 employees by 2020, some of which, of course, are highly skilled and highly paid workers, but many others of which are paid very little and under very harsh conditions. And this number of 77,000, of course, is not counting the many thousands of others running hotels, restaurants, travel agencies, and so forth that depend almost entirely on this tourism traffic to Disney World. So it really has become one of the major industries of Florida. And it became really the first big boom industry in inland central Florida and made Orlando into a significant city, not only in Florida, but in the country. And it was a factor also in building up what's now known as sort of the Route 4 central belt across the middle of Florida as a large urban and suburban and affluent area, right? Running from the Tampa Bay area through Orlando, Kissimmee, St. Cloud, and arguably on up uh, to north of Cape Canaveral. Now, Disney World, of course, is really iconic, right? It's a mass-marketed leisure and entertainment megaplex. And one can take many complex meanings from Disney World. There are different ways of understanding what it represents. On the one hand, it is, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of crass, vulgar commercialism, right? This kind of fake, money-making, in some ways, generic park that is plunked down in the middle of what had been natural swamplands and savannas. But also, on the other hand, there are other ways of seeing Disney World, especially in the context of Florida. One can see it as a continuation of the long tradition of Florida utopianism. If you think of Main Street USA in the Magic Kingdom, this sort of paradisal simulacrum of an idealized American town. And then even more than that, a few years later with EPCOT, right? EPCOT Center is an acronym that stands for Experimental Prototype Community of Tomorrow. And it involves sort of fake country pavilions, you know, little kind of fake France, fake China. And then Along with that, all these futuristic rides and exhibitions about supposedly exciting uh, technologies of the future, like hydroponics, and these sort of rides and exhibitions are housed around and inside the enormous geodesic dome, you know, built to look almost like uh, a mid-century vision of this future. It's taken on this kind of retro-futuristic look. And Epcot was not opened until 1982. Many were afraid that it would be a huge flop. It had been imagined, of course, by Disney himself in the 60s to be not only another part of the amusement park, but to be an actual town, a planned, controlled community with about 20,000 people. And Disney sort of imagined himself presiding or almost ruling over this perfect futuristic community. And at some at one point, he jokingly called himself, quote, the last of the benevolent monarchs. And he wanted Epcot to be a showcase for American industry and research, 
It would be a town, of course, with no slums. Everyone would be employed. And in all of these ways, you can see Epcot as utopian and a sort of crude form, a leftover form of mid-century techno-futurism that was already in a way out of date by the time that it opened, but nonetheless that somehow captured some part of the American imagination and has turned out to be a tremendous success, almost as big a destination as the Magic Kingdom, and very quickly after opening it almost doubled attendance at Disney World. And this sort of odd, you know, Disney utopianism can also be seen in a more real flesh and blood form in the town of Celebration, Florida, which is a Disney company town built by Disney in the 1990s under the leadership of Eisner, who in many ways is seen as sort of the perfect successor of Walt Disney himself, who also is a kind of visionary, uh, sort of in touch with the American zeitgeist, and a bit of a, a tyrant or megalomaniac. And the town of Celebration was built largely in the so-called new classical style, a lot like Disney World, especially Main Street USA. And Disney, the corporation, did over time divest control of the town so that it could be run democratically like a normal town but it still owns certain crucial assets like the utility companies. So all in all, Disney World and Celebration Florida in combination can be seen as representing a weird, almost delusional idealism. And it can be seen not just as something quintessentially modern or postmodern, like Baudrillard might say, but also as a last gasp of this utopian tradition of people Americans in particular approaching Florida and seeing it as a blank slate on which to build ideal worlds, right? And this, you can take this all the way back to the creation of, of the Jewish colony in central Florida back in the 1820s on up through the Koreshian commune in South Florida in the early 1900s. In a way, Disney World and its appurtenances kind of follow in this Florida-American utopian craze. So Disney World is the last really big dramatic addition into the Florida economic mix. And by the 1980s, it's clear that Florida is now one of the biggest states in the country. It continues to grow, although not quite as fast as it did in, say, the 1950s and 60s. It is the largest and fastest growing state in the South. And it is understood more and more to be an important political battleground, especially as a battleground of the South, as the South grows and changes and transforms. What political direction will that whole section of the country take? Florida is seen as sort of the leading edge and the key to it all. So New Deal policies, the New Deal, you know, Roosevelt New Deal style of governing and the creation of big public works were fairly popular in Florida in the 30s and 40s, and they continued to be championed especially by the liberal Senator Claude Pepper, who was sort of a uh, you know, liberal populist Democrat. But after the end of the war, there was uh, ambiguity and uncertainty about whether this New Deal style of governance really had a future in Florida, or if Florida was going to take a conservative turn or a more free market, free enterprise turn. 
And crucially, in 1950, Pepper was challenged by his own former protege, the Congressman George Smathers. Smathers got enormous support from real estate developers who wanted to keep critical resources and land on the private market rather than having it used for public projects. And most particularly, Claude Pepper's enemy, the very powerful real estate developer Ed Ball of Jacksonville, wanted to take over control of the East Florida Railway, which had been under state receivership since the crash of 1928. And so Ed Ball, other real estate interests, and also doctors' associations, medical associations who were afraid of socialized medicine, combined resources and launched a campaign against Pepper. He was attacked with supposed links to communist groups. He was dubbed, quote, Red Pepper, And he ended up losing the 1950 election to Smathers. And this was seen by many as a sign, an early sign, of a conservative swing now in the post-war era in the country and most especially in the South. As for the State House in Tallahassee, through the mid-century era, basically from the time of recovery in the late 30s on up, into the 1970s, the legislature was basically run by a clique called the Pork Chop Gang, and that was a democratic machine that was closely allied with developers like Ed Ball. And it centered especially on a group of 20 long-serving legislators who ran the legislature through that era, who were mainly from central and especially northern Florida, the stretch from Jacksonville to Pensacola. And this group exploited the disproportionate representation of the northern counties in the legislature. And they were able to prevent any new redistricting, which would recognize and respond to the enormous shift in population southward to places like Miami. They also were segregationist. They defended segregation and launched punitive investigations of the NAACP for supposed communism. So they again uh, took advantage of the sort of McCarthyist atmosphere in the 50s. And also in order to suppress criticism or possible opponents, they investigated academics and journalists for homosexuality, using that as a way to sort of discredit and silence them. So... Nonetheless, you know, despite the power of this pork chop gang, it was clear that there were many avenues to possibly challenge their power. And the first big crisis that undermined their control of Florida was the civil rights movement. And Florida was a significant battleground of the civil rights movement. It was part of the Jim Crow South. And it was relied upon by the National Democratic Party as part of the solid South, right? This block of the Southeast that would be controlled by the exclusively white Democratic Party. But at the same time, Florida was different from other Southern states. There were sources of internal opposition, and the state was rapidly changing, not only at this time, but all the way since Reconstruction. There were northern migrants who favored civil rights, Uh, the African-American population, although many were effectively disenfranchised by the poll tax, they were not totally disenfranchised. They maintained some political power in places like Jacksonville. 
And so segregationists and the Democratic Party in Florida were extremely afraid of losing control of the state. And it was always a battleground with a great deal of violence. There was harassment, many lynchings of African Americans, especially in the 20s at the height of the Jim Crow era. And African Americans in the state were mainly concentrated in the interior and the north. But they started gradually to migrate into cities, especially, most of all, into Miami for work and to escape the violence and intimidation that they were exposed to in the rural interior. But even in Miami, they were excluded from beaches and from high-end neighborhoods and developments. And they weren't so wanted in the frontline tourism industries. In some ways, they were kept sort of invisible. So Miami was, you could say, a kind of... uh, powder keg. And the city was socially very segregated. Segregation was enforced from the 20s on into the 40s and 50s by the Ku Klux Klan and by the police. And as it happens, some of the insecurity was due to the fact that the African-American community there was met then, was supplemented by migrants from the West Indies, many of whom had no experience with Jim Crow and segregation and were seen as possible agents of undermining the Jim Crow regime. And one example, the actor Sidney Poitier, who was originally from the Bahamas, moved to Miami in 1942 at the age of 15, and he worked as a delivery man. And he was repeatedly threatened both by the Ku Klux Klan and by police for offenses like, for example, knocking on a white person's front door to deliver a package instead of going to the back door. And this sort of harassment, intimidation, eventually drove him out of Miami to New York. Nonetheless, there was a significant core of African Americans that developed in Miami, and it tended to be fairly isolated because of residential segregation. It was isolated mainly in the Overton neighborhood, just north of downtown Miami. And in the 30s, with increasing migration and with the poverty of the Depression, Overton became something of a slum. And in the New Deal era, in the 30s, the Roosevelt administration supported the creation of a large public housing complex further up to the northwest, basically outside of the city. And this housing complex became the nucleus of a larger and more middle-class, sometimes prosperous, African-American area, which came to be called Liberty City. So Liberty City enjoyed some degree of prosperity, especially after the war, benefiting from these new industries brought into Florida. But it then was strained when much of Overton, the the older and very overcrowded neighborhood within the city, Overton was largely demolished to make way for I-95 running into Miami. And so thousands of African-Americans were forced out of Overton. And again, because of segregation, because they weren't allowed to move into other areas, they were basically funneled into Liberty City. And this led to more density, more poverty, crime, overstrained schools and infrastructure, and so forth. So Liberty City basically survived in this kind of precarious position through the 50s and on into the early 60s, but with growing frustration. And by this time, you could say Florida as a whole seemed to combine old-style Southern racism and segregation with then the newer Northern-style urban residential segregation. 
and demonstrations for civil rights were organized in Jacksonville and Tallahassee, which sometimes led into street fights, small riots. There was violent backlash by the Ku Klux Klan and other segregationists. But there also were some countervailing tendencies and sources of possible hope or support as the civil rights movement slowly took off in Florida. There was, of course, as I've said before, the legacy of unionism and reconstruction, the significant opposition to the Democratic Party in Florida. And even to some degree, there was still a lingering legacy of the Spanish colonial era. Certain places where many people had Spanish and Catholic heritage, where there was a legacy of intermarriage and intermingling between people of different races, and where segregation tended to be less strict, or at least less violently enforced. And of course, the big enduring center of that Spanish colonial legacy in Florida was St. Augustine. And St. Augustine became a flashpoint for a short period, of a major flashpoint of the civil rights struggle in the 60s. So that town was seen as a possible beachhead for civil rights, more promising. There was more of that tradition of coexistence. There were some high status black families in St. Augustine. There were uh, Catholic churches that had black and white congregants. And in 1964, schools in St. Augustine were fully integrated. So that was 10 years after the Brown versus Board of Ed ruling, but nonetheless, St. Augustine was among the quickest and first large towns in the South to comply with that ruling and desegregate schools. And this helped then to attract attention. Some pro-civil rights demonstrators and organizers started to gather there in St. Augustine and to try to lay groundwork for big public actions for the following year, in 1965, when the city would celebrate its quadricentennial, the 400th anniversary of its founding back in 1565. So as it became clear that St. Augustine was a staging ground for a sort of public move for civil rights in the South, some segregationists, especially of the Klan, followed them and began to harass and attack them and try to drive them out of town. And the city became a battleground of sort of low-level violence and struggle in the early months of 1964, which was only escalated then when MLK himself visited the city and tried to sort of take up leadership of the organizers and demonstrators. So tension was escalating until city authorities began to crack down, trying to to stop this sort of low-level violence, and also started to push people out of the city on both sides, both civil rights organizers and white supremacist uh, attackers. And Nonetheless, although this sort of St. Augustine movement, as it was called, was largely suppressed and petered out, nonetheless, it helped them to push Congress to pass the Civil Rights Act later that year in 64. Now, even with the Civil Rights Act, a lot of these frustrations continued, right? Social and housing discrimination, police violence, inadequate schools. And so a lot of that discontent continued to bubble up and erupted again in small riots all over many towns all over the state in 1967. Now, by that time, by 1967, of course, the Voting Rights Act had been enacted. 
the poll tax in Florida had been struck down, and now larger numbers of African Americans in Florida could vote. And that was one contributing factor, among others that I'll mention, to a dramatic political shift in Florida in the late 60s and the 70s and even on into the 80s. One element in this dramatic shift was that Republicans began winning major victories in the 60s. They started with large gains in the legislature in the mid-60s and then the election of Claude Kirk, the first Republican to be elected governor of Florida since Reconstruction, and he was elected in 1966. So this was way ahead of any other southern state. And it was followed then by a number of close competitive elections in the state, and eventually the election of another Republican, Bob Martinez, as governor in 1986. So the power of the pork chop gang, that Democratic machine, was already quickly declining. And new reformists came in, including both Republicans and reformist Democrats, came into the state legislature. In 1968, the state held a convention and adopted a new constitution. This constitution, for one thing, ended school segregation, which was supposed to be already over because of Brown versus Board of Ed. But it also reapportioned payment and funding to the different schools in Florida to make them more equalized. Certain reformist leaders, such as Bob Graham and Lawton Childs, got reforms in education, in election law, and criminal justice. They enacted anti-discrimination laws and new environmental protections. In the, later in the 70s, they instituted school busing to carry through on integration and a corporate income tax, which hadn't existed in Florida before. Many of these reforms when they couldn't get through the legislature, many of them were passed by referendum on the ballot in order to get around the conservative bloc in Tallahassee. And little by little, especially with this dramatic reapportionment, where now Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa actually had seats in the legislature commensurate with their size, the old guard democratic group quickly lost ground and basically the last stalwart of the pork chop gang the speaker ed fortune of pace was ousted from the speakership in a surprise coup in 1977. so really with that loss in 1977 florida came to be acknowledged now as a major national background, and it has become, of course, by the 21st century, the largest so-called swing state in the country. So whereas most regions around the country have settled into really hardening partisanship of red versus blue, Florida has such a complex mix of different interests, classes, affinity groups, that it has teetered, really, and has straddled that line between red and blue America. And there are various reasons why it's emerged as this major swing state. So as I said, there are different countervailing forces among different populations that have rapidly entered into the electorate in Florida from the 60s to 2000. And these include, for one thing, the African-American vote, so African-Americans now could mostly cast ballots after the Voting Rights Act and the repeal of the poll tax. But that doesn't mean that they factored in in a clear, straightforward way into the new landscape. Some, early on at least, still associated the Republican Party with Reconstruction and civil rights. 
Many others supported reformist factions in the Democratic Party, but weren't necessarily entirely enthusiastic about either party, and there was a great deal of discontent, voting numbers could go up and down, and not only that, but the proportion of the African American vote in Florida was gradually diminishing, with emigration north, out of the state, and with the great influx of new people into Florida from other parts of the U.S. and from other countries. So the percentage of African Americans in the state population dropped from close to 50% in the 19th century to only about 15% by 1990. So although they now can participate in politics fully, their clout numerically has diminished. As I said, they tend largely to vote Democratic, but are not necessarily very happy with the mainstream democratic machine, even with the reforms of the 1960s and 70s. The biggest single concentration of African Americans in the state is now Liberty City in Miami, although there are many still all throughout rural Florida and all the various cities and towns. The biggest group is in Liberty City, and Liberty City has a great deal of crime and poverty. It has substandard schools, infrastructure, sanitation, and so forth, all of which create lingering discontent and a sense of, of disappointment that the civil rights successes have not led to the sort of changes that they might have hoped. And finally, riots in Liberty City, massive riots, were touched off in 1980, when police were acquitted after killing a black Marine named Arthur McDuffie. And this acquittal led to three nights of riots and street fighting in which 18 people were killed. And this shows the continuing unresolved issues, especially of urban African Americans, which obviously should ring a bell to all of us today. Now, at the same time that the African American vote was diminishing numerically, there was a tremendous influx of northern liberals, right? With the tremendous uh, trend of retirement to Florida, there was a growing northern population, especially ethnic and most particularly Jewish. So as of 1913, a small group of Jews lived in Miami, and, and that year they formed the first synagogue in that city, Beth David. Now, basically, from that point onward, the Jewish population grew steadily in the 30s, several hundred more settled in Miami. So really a small but noticeable exclave of Jews in South Florida. But from the 30s onward, the population of Jews basically doubled every five years, all the way up through the 1980s. So that by the year 2000, about 600,000 Jewish people lived in the Miami to Palm Beach area of South Florida, and also about 150,000 others in other parts around the state. And this gave Florida the third biggest Jewish population in the country, after only New York and California. Palm Beach County, as of recent years, Palm Beach County has the highest proportion of any county in the United States of people who say that their religion is Judaism. So over 13% of Palm Beach County says that they are Jewish in response to the question of their religion. And about 12% of all self-identified Jews in the United States are in Florida. And that's, you know, not an exact number. It's hard to pin down precisely because 
religion is not recorded in the United States Census, but it is clear that Florida has quickly become a major concentration of Jews, not only in the U.S., but in the world. Also, very fast on the heels of this Jewish influx, there is the migration of Cuban Americans. So there had been a significant Cuban community in Florida that was very organized, very politicized, and to some degree prosperous through the cigar and tobacco industry, and that was concentrated around Tampa Bay and Key West. That dates all the way back to the 19th century. And that group continued to grow slowly through the early 1900s, but then had a sudden dramatic growth in the early 60s. And it has politically evolved in terms of its views and loyalties. And that, of course, is a result of the Cuban Revolution, in which left-wing revolutionaries led by Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and others seized control of Cuba in 1959. So the Cuban community in Florida had a long history of radicalism. It was a hotbed of the Cuba Libre movement for independence and democracy in Cuba, and then also of leftism and anarchism through the 1920s and 30s. And as I mentioned last time, the tobacco factory workers in Florida would hire so-called lectores, readers to read literature, news, and also to share and circulate radical ideas, Marxism, anarchism. And this radicalization culminated arguably in a 1931 strike, which was called by largely Marxist-led Cuban-American unions. That strike failed and the lectores were replaced with radios. But nonetheless, this sort of uh, progressive orientation of Cuban Florida continued, but then was overtaken by the enormous new wave of 1960s emigres who tended to be more conservative. They often were from the propertied classes of Cuba. Many of their assets might have been seized by the Castro government. They were fiercely anti-communist and also largely anti-democrat, especially after the Bay of Pigs disaster in which Kennedy supported an attempted invasion to overthrow Castro but did not provide air cover. And this caused disillusionment and bitterness in the Cuban exile community. So this Cuban group continued to grow further in more waves, especially in the large Mariel emigration that crossed from Cuba to Florida by flotilla in 1980. All Cuban migrants who land on American soil are given automatic legal immigrant status, and there are no quotas or limits, unlike on other nations, migrants that might be coming from Mexico, Venezuela, etc. So this spurred on a continuing stream of legal immigrants from Cuba who may be leaving that country illegally, but who land in the U.S. legally. And it reached such a degree that Cuban Americans made up about 60% of the whole population of Miami by 1990. And so whereas in earlier years, one could speak of a certain neighborhood of Miami as, quote, little Cuba, by the end of the century, really, that phrase could apply to the whole city. It had all become a kind of little Cuba. And today, there are roughly one and a half million Cuban Americans throughout the state of Florida. And they have also become a major political force in Florida. And hence, because Florida is a battleground, they've become 
a national political force, and they t- have tended to be Republican-leaning and fiercely anti-communist, although those tendencies have arguably lessened somewhat as new generations of Cuban Americans have been born and raised in Florida and are more orient themselves more in terms of U.S. politics than Cuban politics. And further, on the heels of that Cuban migration, there have been other large immigrant communities from the West Indies and Latin America, especially Haitians, who began coming in in large numbers on the heels of the Cubans. Many of these Haitian migrants were also fleeing from their home government, namely from the repressive Duvalier regimes in Haiti. And they tended to concentrate mainly in the northern part of the city, basically in the area between Liberty City and the harbor. And that had been a largely Bahamian neighborhood earlier in the century. But with this concentration of Haitians and Haitian businesses and the Haitian Creole language, it came to be known as Little Haiti. And so by the late 20th century, you can see Miami taking on a particular social geography with basically a largely middle-class Latino and white region in the center and southern parts of the city, including and enveloping Coral Gables, and then a more working-class and often poor area of mainly Black American and West Indian in the northern part of the city. So it is, in this way, a typically American segregated city. It's just unusual in the large number of Latinos and to some degree, the, the integration and intermixture of white and Latino middle-class people in the southern side of the city. There are also, of course, others, Colombian, Venezuelan, Mexican, Central American, and some of those settle in Miami, but also many of them go past the city and settle in rural areas working in the agricultural industries like citrus and sugarcane. So by 2000, Miami really becomes the main point of contact for the United States with Latin America and the Caribbean. It is a sort of international portal and nexus. It becomes the big center of banking and investment in Latin American industries and a center of shipping and transport for goods up and down the the American continents. So hence the fact that Miami is a migrant center, that it is now basically a bilingual society of English and Spanish, this gives it a role as a gateway and it brings in more traditional industries, industries like finance and shipping that have been anchors of the economies of other cities. Miami is truly no longer just a tourist destination. It is a commercial and industrial city. So the complex and shifting politics of Florida is then also compounded by new population sort of uh, affinity groups and pressure groups that form in other areas in the state. Social and religious groups, uh, the gay community, which is centered first in South Beach in Miami Beach, but then also becomes large in the Tampa Bay area and in the Southwest Coast, places like Fort Myers, and alternative religious and lifestyle groups like, for one thing, Scientology, which had formed in back in the 1950s, but which then set its sights, much like Disney, set its sights on Central Florida as a new kind of base of operations. And the Church of Scientology bought a hotel 
to act as a headquarters in the town of Clearwater, Florida, near Tampa Bay in 1975, and then expanded from there with aims, it seems, of actually taking over the town and making it a sort of Scientology town, a lot like you you could compare it to Disney World and Celebration Florida. So all of this leads to Florida's volatility and its swing state status. And that leads in turn to enormous national attention and resources on Florida. There's a great deal of federal spending on infrastructure in Florida and often on recovery from disasters and crises. And there have been a series of important crises that have hit Florida over about the last 40 years that have drawn in national money and attention. One was the large increase in crime, especially among youth in the 1980s. So Florida became a major drug trafficking site, especially with the fashion for crack cocaine and drugs could be trafficked into the United States by way of Florida by plane and boat from South America and the West Indies. There also, some of those drugs then were sold off cheaply into urban and youth communities in Florida. This led to a high rate of crime and incarceration of youth and to the highest youth suicide rate in the country as well, which only started to gradually come down after 1990. Now, this sort of new difficulty and this new sense of danger that maybe Florida wasn't a safe place to be or a safe investment was really pushed to the limit then by the disaster of Hurricane Andrew in 1992. So that was the most powerful hurricane to hit the United States since 1928, the Miami hurricane of 1928. It struck the Miami area with winds up to 175 miles per hour, so you know, setting all kinds of records. It hit hardest in a fairly concentrated area south of the center of the city, especially the township of Homestead, which is a very mixed town, mixed middle class and working class, and which combined outer suburbs of the city with also farming and agricultural areas in the interior. And so it hit Homestead with the greatest brunt and then gradually weakened as it crossed across the peninsula and then spawned several tornadoes up and down the Gulf Coast of Florida. So in all, it's believed about 65 people were killed in the hurricane. Older concrete buildings that were built in the old style of the 1920s basically survived, while newer, lighter buildings of wood and aluminum frames, small houses, mobile homes, trailers were totally destroyed and about a quarter million people were left homeless in the aftermath of the hurricane. And a crisis followed, a period of chaos, lack of communication, as millions of people were out of power. The state was overwhelmed. People in neighborhoods had to organize themselves and help one another to survive by sharing food, clean water, and so forth. But eventually, federal authorities were dragged in, partly because this became an embarrassment to the George Bush administration, who was up for re-election. So the feds were dragged in, and together with the state and with private organizations, a recovery was undertaken. Ultimately, several billion dollars were spent on relief and recovery in Florida. A community project called We Will Rebuild was organized by the editor of the Miami Herald, which brought together labor to get homes and businesses rebuilt and in a more secure fashion. 
Over the following years, Florida instituted very strict building codes, ensuring that buildings were strapped down, so to speak. So not only that they had the sturdiness to stand up against their weight, but also were rooted into the ground securely and strongly enough to withstand enormous winds and storm surge. Florida International University created the so-called Wall of Wind Laboratory in order to test building materials under simulated Category 5 hurricane conditions. And as of earlier this year, according to a recent article, they were also working on creating another lab that would simulate storm surge coming in from the ocean. So in the hurricane, many people were traumatized, lost their homes and their possessions. But the recovery was effective enough that it did not cause the sort of panic and exodus from Florida like had been seen in the 1920s. And Florida continued to be seen as a reasonable destination and investment. It did not lead to a collapse. But nonetheless, it had certain significant effects. For one thing, the hurricane hastened the already beginning exodus out of the immediate Miami area. And it combined, the hurricane devastation combined with high crime, poor schools, and the loss of natural beauty with rapid sort of untrammeled development. All of these factors caused a significant move of population and of money out of the Miami area, a lot of it northward into Broward and Palm Beach counties, which in turn have grown very rapidly. And also even has redirected a lot of migration and development into other parts of Florida, especially central Florida. And so by the end of the century, you can already see the center of gravity of the state in terms of population, money, politics, moving slowly northward into that sort of central belt around Tampa Bay and Orlando. And all of these factors then, of course, came into play in the very close and disputed 2000 presidential election. And I don't have to get into all the details and back and forth. There have been many books written about it, about the armies of lawyers, publicists, spin doctors that surged into Florida, that combed through and examined all kinds of ballots, unreliable numbers, disputes over recounts that were never really resolved, that were basically just cut off by a Supreme Court ruling. And the 2000 election left a lingering distaste, whether fairly or not. It fed into a perception abroad, and even within Florida to some degree, a Florida as specially chaotic, corrupt, and dysfunctional. And in some ways, this tapped into and compounded the lingering sense of Florida left over from the 1950s as a place of corruption and lawlessness. The images, for example, of the glitzy Miami Beach, which were seen as a sort of East Coast equivalent to Vegas. And famously, Senator Estes Kefauver launched investigations into Miami Beach and the corruption, the mob crime. He called it a capital of, quote, upper bracket hoodlumdom and as a plunder ground as well as a playground for the rich. And a lot of this distaste and distrust towards Florida was kept alive by many new developments springing up, often using 
uh, illegal methods, bribery, kickbacks, and this continuing corruption and also image problem for Florida is part of a web of problems and issues that the state has to deal with in the 21st century in the aftermath of this continuing boom and these decades of rapid growth. So not only overt corruption, but even just the concentration of wealth itself. So much money has been put or moved into Florida by wealthy retirees, wealthy visitors, business speculators. And this influx of wealth leads to prosperity. It leads to new sectors of the economy, but also it leads to enormous inequality. A lot of the state is populated by service workers, including low-level minimum wage workers, in jobs that even in the 1990s did not pay enough for the high housing costs. And hence, despite almost full employment, very low, almost non-existent unemployment in the state, nonetheless, there is still considerable poverty. And the historian Michael Gannon, writing in 2003, actually, interestingly, he cited Orlando as an example of this problem, this chasm between wealth and the high costs it creates and low wages, which he saw at that time in 2003 as peculiar to Florida. And he writes, quote, in the metro Orlando area, where there is essentially full employment, most of it is in minimum wage, low skills, high turnover jobs. The per capita income is $3,000 less than the national average, and one out of eight employees works more than one job, end quote. So one might see an irony in these words from Michael Gannon from 2003, in the fact that this state of affairs of low-paying jobs, high turnover, lack of stability, this can now be seen as common throughout the country. And in particular, if one looks at Central Florida, where there is the Space Coast and Disney World, one sees a polarization between very high-paying technical and managerial jobs, including in high-tech industries, concentrated in particular places, but right next to very widespread poverty among largely service workers. And this situation that Gannon is talking about, where about one out of eight workers works more than one job, today in 2022, that might strike us as not surprising at all, right? That that might apply to workforces in many different parts of the country. So in this way, one can see Florida as starting to take its place as a kind of leading indicator, right? As a, a forerunner of the new sort of structure of economy that is now common throughout the country, not just in Florida. Also, the enormous wealth in Florida does bring prosperity, but it also means the existence of a very powerful, wealthy class, which can use its wealth for political power and influence. And more specifically in Florida, the state has become a very large, expansive, and expensive media market. And hence, it's very, very costly to run a statewide campaign for office in Florida, or for that matter, a presidential campaign. And more or less, it's become a kind of gateway where one must be rich in order to run for office. And there's been a series of very rich governors from Jeb Bush to Charlie Crist to others who dump large amounts of personal or family money 
into this expensive media market. And basically without that, it's almost impossible even to be known in Florida and all of these different large and expensive metropolitan areas. So more or less one has to buy the governor's mansion in Florida. And more broadly, there are all kinds of challenges stemming from the geography of Florida. The state is split into many different distinct regions with different economic interests and with separate media markets, with their own newspapers, their own TV stations. And for one thing, just the long distance, the extremely long distance from the capital to the main population center, which is in South Florida. It's almost 500 miles from Miami to Tallahassee. And Miami is where most of the major media and business enterprises are based. And hence, it's very difficult for media in, you know, hundreds of miles away to scrutinize and to report properly on the activities of the state government, and much less so for ordinary voters who are hundreds of miles away and who have a very hard time even meeting with their legislators. And one can see the same sort of pattern in other states like New York, where all the media is concentrated in New York City, while the state house is hundreds of miles removed away in Albany. But that distance is even greater and more prohibitive in Florida, right? Tallahassee was chosen, the site was chosen to be central because at that time it was between the main towns of St. Augustine in the east and Pensacola in the west. Well, now Tallahassee is far away from the centers of population and the center of gravity of most of Florida. And because of this remove and isolation of the capital, the government is very susceptible to lobbying and influence peddling. As I said, in mid-century, the legislature was largely run by the pork chop gang, which was closely allied with the big developers. And then after 1960, the pork chop gang's power erodes, but nonetheless, lobbyists and national organizations from outside the state remain very powerful in Tallahassee. They have a strong influence on the Republican majority, which is usually in power, but on Democrats as well. And really, it's, it's lobbyists and organizations like ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that tends to really set the agenda in Tallahassee more than the public. And this makes Florida then into a laboratory for experiments brought in from outside. And one famous example of that, of course, is in the gun laws. Florida has long had very loose and permissive laws on obtaining guns. The NRA has tremendous power in Tallahassee. It's been sometimes called, quote, the gunshine state. And the legislature also enacted a so-called stand-your-ground law after lobbying by ALEC and the NRA and other groups in 2005. And these policies, including the stand-your-ground law, have become very controversial after famous incidents like the killing of Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida, which is in east-central Florida in 2012 and whose killer was then later acquitted on self-defense grounds. It did not, the trial did not directly invoke the stand your ground clause, but it was perceived as similar, right? That the, the killer, George Zimmerman, was found to be justified in killing Trayvon Martin based on his fear. Also then, the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in South Florida in 2018. And in that case, the killer was only 19 years old, but he had obtained the gun that he used to kill legally. So Florida again became a new kind of battleground, a sort of testing ground in this 
controversy over gun rights and gun policies. And this did lead, the outrage did lead to the passage of a new set of laws creating a waiting period for obtaining a gun and an age minimum of 21 for legally obtaining a gun. But the controversial stand your ground clause in the self-defense law remains. And of course, Florida is also a major battleground in the struggle over the environment and environmental protection, which is woven into the geography of every part of Florida. So the Everglades, at least a large portion of them, and some other wetlands around Florida have been successfully protected from projects that would drain them, pave over them for development. Also, a proposed canal cutting across the peninsula from the St. John's River to the Gulf was begun in 1964, but then was stopped due to opposition in Tallahassee in 1971. And that proposed canal would have brought pollutants and salt water deep into the wetlands of northern and central Florida. Still, there has been continuing loss of many habitats, wetlands, woodlands, savanna. As of 1990, only half of the rivers and lakes in Florida were found to be safe to swim or fish in. Others were polluted, especially by agricultural fertilizers and pesticides. Even those habitats that were left, that were protected, were quickly being taken over by invasive species. And there are many of them, but one especially iconic one is Burmese pythons, which first came into Florida as exotic pets in the 1970s and 80s, but some of them were released into the wild where they then grew enormous to the point that they could rival alligators as apex predators and even fight alligators. Additionally, it seems they have crossbred with American Indian rock pythons, which makes them more aggressive, and they've been killing off many mammal species. They're very rarely hunted, whereas you know there, there are hunters of all kinds of animals around Florida, but the pythons are rarely hunted because of mercury poisoning. Although they, they are, in principle, they're edible, they accumulate mercury in their bodies as apex predators, and cannot be eaten. And so the state has had to issue bounties, paying people to hunt the pythons and urging Floridians to kill them on sight. Also now in recent years, one sees more and more the effects of sea levels rising, which affect the entire coastline of the state. It seems the sea level has risen by about six inches around Miami and South Florida over the past few decades. Small level flooding in Miami is now a regular occurrence during spring tides, even regardless of weather, even on clear sunny days. Miami Beach has begun raising roadbeds to try to get them uh, above these increasingly frequent floodwaters, but this has the effect then of diverting those waters into houses. Furthermore, salt water, especially in central and southern Florida, salt water is intruding into freshwater sources and aquifers to the point that soon they may become unusable. And if warming continues at the current rate, it's expected that sea levels will rise at least a further two feet this century. And if that does happen at that minimum estimate of two feet, about 10% of South Florida will disappear underwater. And all throughout Florida also, there's the increasing problem of sinkholes. 
So as I said in the first lecture, almost all of Florida rests on a low, porous shelf of limestone. And that limestone can erode and weaken as fresh water is pumped out of it for use as drinking water. And this has become more and more of a, a rapid progression as development has continued, especially in the rapidly growing developing areas of central Florida. And so now it's become a frequent occurrence that cars and even whole houses can suddenly disappear into a sinkhole in seconds. And one man infamously was sucked 20 feet underground while he was in his bed at home. So the sinkholes, as I'll mention again later, they seem in some ways to be emblematic of this sort of reckless exploitation of the Florida environment, which now is starting to, the chickens are starting to come home to roost, you could say. All of these issues, of course, are, are affected by the enormous influence of money and corruption in the state. But even apart from that, if one puts that aside, one can see a sort of widespread growing mentality in Florida in recent decades. A general sort of libertarian attitude of live and let live, and the idea that Florida should allow more freedom than is afforded in the rest of the country, and that Florida can even be now a refuge, not just for migrants or immigrants, but as for what you could call sort of refugees from laws and regulations in the rest of the country. And this reflects, I think, an interesting inversion in the post-Cold War era from the 1990s to today, where individualism, lack of state intervention, are now seen as sort of the new utopianism, right? Whereas once people used to see Florida as a kind of blank slate for new social visions, new visions of social organization, now it is seen as a blank slate for individual freedom and experimentation apart from society. And this was brought into relief, of course, in recent years with the COVID crisis, where Florida was among the most permissive states in the country, and it became a sort of destination. Tourism to Florida was, in a way, politicized, as it attracted many visitors and even migrants into the state who opposed the strict restrictions that were instituted in many other parts of the country. So COVID can be seen as an illustration, but this mentality really is very pervasive. And Florida now increasingly prides itself as a state of private enterprise and individualism. Public services, not surprisingly then, are largely underfunded. Education has really changed in Florida. <clears throat> for a long time, the state has been among the best in the country for education and certainly the best in the South. And you might remember back in the Jim Crow era, as I mentioned, Florida had by far the highest literacy rate in the South. But in recent years, Florida's standing has dropped, mainly due to very low funding. Florida is now 43rd in the country in terms of spending per student. And some of this derives also from a persistent problem that has taken shape in Florida that a lot of Floridians point to, which is the problem of many voters in the state not being interested in investing in state resources or services for the long term. Many of them are retirees. They don't expect to live there for very long. They don't have family roots there. If they have children or grandchildren, they generally live elsewhere in other parts of the country. And so they're very disinclined to sacrifice 
money, their wealth that they've built up over their lifetimes for Florida state services, including schools. And this is compounded also even within the state by frequent migration and rootlessness. So as of the 1990s, about one-fifth of students in Florida schools changed schools each year. So there's extreme instability even within the families of the state. And similar issues are seen then with the mental health system. So mental health services in Florida are among the worst in the country. The state spends less per capita on mental health than any other state except for Idaho. And furthermore, the system is very complicated and decentralized with the local governments choosing different groups that they want to outsource their mental health care to. And so it can be very chaotic if one moves from place to place and can be almost impossible to stay in the system. And this mental health problem then combined with the warm climate and mild winters, much like in California, leads to a concentration of homeless people, of uprooted migratory people, many of them with mental health issues. And hence, this can feed into an escalating problem. And all of these factors, the sort of sense of uh, freewheeling, almost lawlessness, the mental health problem, all of this combines then to lead to a new evolving image of Florida as not uh, a paradise, but as more of a dystopia, a sort of dystopia of modern America taken to the utmost extreme. And this sense is, I think, exemplified, as many of you probably know, by the popular Florida Man Twitter account, which is a Twitter account started in 2013 that quickly became a sensation and a controversy and was reported on in many media outlets, including the Washington Post. And it's a Twitter account that simply tweets headlines from news reports around the country about strange things that a so-called Florida man does. And these include a lot of strange petty crimes, such as, quote, Florida man tries to walk out of store with chainsaw stuffed down his pants. And also in particular, and this is really connected to the special environment of Florida, a lot of dangerous interactions with animals, such as, quote, Florida man says he kept alligator in three-year-old son's room because he thought it was cool. Florida man forced to apologize for cannonballing on manatee. And Florida man charged with assault with a deadly weapon after throwing alligator through a Wendy's drive through window. And a lot of these dangerous uh, encounters and reckless behavior with animals also, of course, involve drugs at the same time, such as in Florida man caught picking hallucinogenic mushrooms with alligator and backpack, and Florida man films himself driving around drunk and high at 3 a.m. with endangered owl. But even putting the animals and the drugs aside, often they just involve general weird or lewd behavior that can't really be tied to any specific social issue, like Florida man arrested for directing traffic while also urinating, and Florida man calls 911 after PlayStation stops working. So eventually this account stopped tweeting. Many people saw it as embarrassing, towards the state or exploitative towards people with drugs and mental health problems. So it did stop tweeting, but nonetheless, many news outlets still continued 
collecting and publishing lists of these Florida man headlines, such as one recently, quote, Florida man pretends to be prosecutor, tries to drop charges against himself. And I really like that last one because I think that it shows how this whole idea of collecting Florida man headlines, how it expresses a mixture of disgust, horror, and admiration. Florida man, the sort of character, the persona of Florida man, has taken shape as this sort of archetypal American daredevil, the person who will try anything and think that he can somehow get away with it, and as a sort of embodiment of blithe recklessness. And the creation of this idea, this new archetype of Florida man, it is partly the result of Florida's very stringent public records laws. So in 1909, Florida enacted a law that state records should be very open and available to the public, and it was even further strengthened then in 1967 as one of the first acts under the first Republican governor as a way of opening up the very corrupt and closed Democratic-dominated government. So in some ways, it's a result of this first wave of reform in the 60s. And so according to the state's public record laws, anyone, whether a resident of Florida or not, anyone can inspect or copy any public records of any Florida agency for any reason. There are only very narrow exceptions for personal private information like health records or social security numbers. But apart from those exceptions, anyone from anywhere can access any records from any state or local agency. And hence, this made it possible for journalists and commentators to troll through the extensive arrest records and reports of all kinds of incidents, petty crimes, disturbances, conflicts or encounters with nature. A lot of animals show up, as I said, alligators, manatees, birds. And this has become more and more what most people think of as their sort of understanding of Florida, a sense of chaos, that it has become almost a land of the mad. And this, I think, in a way, it, it is in keeping and maybe is catching up with the new Florida literature, right? So I talked at the end of the last lecture about the sort of blossoming of literature about Florida as Key West became a center of, of literary bohemia in the 20s and 30s. But now there is a new Florida literature, basically from the 70s to today, that tries to capture not utopian Florida, but this sort of strange dystopian Florida that in some way exemplifies the American dystopia. And it's characterized by black comedy, a sense of irony, of unfortunate coincidence. There's a sort of Florida noir that's taken shape in the last 50 years. And it's exemplified, probably a lot of you know, by the prolific novelists Elmore Leonard, then Carl Hyacin, and even in a way also by Dave Barry, who is a sort of lighthearted humor writer, but who also tries to capture the sort of absurdity and the incongruities of Florida life. And all of these writers' works involve a lot of crime and corruption happening, especially in places that otherwise seem sterile and generic and that just happen incidentally to be in the tropics. And Carl Hyacin has called South Florida, quote, Newark with palm trees. 
So there's a sort of weird incongruity between the generic American look and feel of human civilization in Florida with this sort of teeming, uh, dangerous, unknowable nature that then is echoed in the sort of underworld of crime and corruption. So a lot of it is about the strangeness, the surrealness of Florida life and a sense of a sort of moral free-for-all in a civilization lacking deep social foundations. So in this way, Florida is the edge of civilization, not just in this sort of sense of excitement and mystery that you see in Wallace Stevens and the idea of order in Key West, but a sense of the edge of civilization as a sort of one-time utopia that has now gone sour and which has this strange disconnect between the human fabric and the natural fabric. And this has all become possible, again, because of technologies like swamp draining, pesticides, and especially air conditioning, which allowed for a sort of new fabric of Florida in which people could be enveloped and even sealed off from their environment. And this sense of Florida noir, I think, is exemplified most often, of course, by the alligators these, you know, dangerous, strange reptilian creatures that come out of the swamps and can appear in places like swimming pools and golf courses and that exemplify this this weird disjuncture and tension between human life and natural life. But also, I would say now, to a great degree, by the sinkholes, right? The sinkholes can be seen as an early sign of Florida, in a sense, crumbling away, that the land and the nature can no longer support what human beings are trying to put on it, and as a sort of macabre sign that nothing is solid or dependable, and as a kind of warning of overconfidence, which I tried to capture also in the title of this lecture series, Fortresses on Sand, you know, the idea of something impressive, something solid, that is built on a foundation that cannot ultimately support it. And this, these problems, like the sinkholes, I think, raise the question then of whether this new Florida, this modern Florida that has come out of the boom, the post-war boom, whether it is just another wave of colonization and settlement that will eventually crumble away, like Spanish colonial Florida, like the antebellum Florida of slave plantations, like the boom Florida of the 1920s, is this modern Florida going to turn out to be unsustainable, especially with climate change and the rising seas? Will Florida itself crumble into the sea? I think that is that is an open question. How resilient will this civilization be in this this new century? And finally, of course, all of that is being put to the test again this moment as I speak, as Floridians, those who have survived the disaster of this latest hurricane, emerge and start to survey the damage and what, how well did Florida prepare for this inevitable moment of another enormous powerful hurricane sweeping across the peninsula? All of those I think are open questions. And with that, I'll just say 
that Rolling Stone this morning put forward an article listing and describing various organizations that one can support with money or labor to help with recovery in Florida. And I'll put the link to that in the description. And if you can help support this podcast and keep it coming, again, please go to the Patreon link in the description. And thank you so much for listening.